0: Hello, it's Vikas Porta, chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF.
1: My name is William Stewart and I'm the news editor on the Times educational supplement in the UK. And it gives me great pleasure this afternoon to introduce this session with Andreas Schleicher, someone who has given us personally a lot to write about over the last few years. Um, Andreas was once memorably described by um, England's former education secretary, Michael Gove, as one of the two most important people in world education. And I think as the OECD official behind the PISA study, um, Andreas has more than lived up to that billing. Findings from PISA have become increasingly influential on world education to the point where sometimes it feels like a country's entire education policy can be based around the PISA's findings and sometimes the desire to move up the rankings. So I think what I'm trying to say in short is that what Andreas Leica says does matter. And today he's going to give us his thoughts on how we can educate our students for the future and give them the knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values that matter for success in tomorrow's world. So Andreas, over to you.
2: Thank you, Stuart, and um, thank you for attending. Uh, It is always so so much easier to educate children for our past than for their future. In fact, education is a quite conservative social enterprise. Sometimes we as parents are more part of the problem than part of the solution we get very anxious when our children no longer learn things that were so important for us and we may get even more anxious when they do learn things that we did not learn when we were young so i think and teachers are often more inclined to teach how they were taught than how they were taught to teach and uh, as a policymaker you can lose an election over education but you never win one over education simply because it takes so much time to translate good ideas into in a better outcome. So that's really what makes education very, very tough. And you know, before talking about the future, just one slide on the past of education. You know, we track educational outcomes as you as you mentioned through PISA quite carefully. And um, in 2006, we started to look at the capacity of students to think like a scientist. We were not so interested in how much scientific knowledge they accumulated, but we wanted to know: you know, can they design an experiment? Can they actually understand the difference between questions that are scientifically investigable from those that are not? And you know, two thousand six is a long time ago for many of us. It's hard to remember those days because it actually the year before the smartphone was invented. We didn't have technology as we do today. Now, Twitter was still a uh, sound. The Amazon was still a river. And Many of these things we take for granted these days did not exist in those times. But when you actually look at learning progress, even in the wealthiest countries of the world, the OECD, things didn't change very much. And the world didn't stop in 2009. Remember, that was the year when Google Maps came out. Maps became dynamic. Cars became electric, starting to drive without a driver. And again, we haven't seen that translating into better scientific thinking skills. We taught students more stuff, we've put more things on top of the curriculum, but their depth of understanding hasn't actually changed very much. And if you just look at the time between 2012 and 2015, you know, robotics, cloud computing, biogenetics, big data, huge changes in the world of science and technology. And actually, things are turning backwards in a way. Again, students learn more things, but their depth of understanding isn't better. If you would see that chart on a brain scan, you know, you get very worried in a hospital. And fortunately, there are some countries, you know, where I have that buck, the trend. You know, Portugal, a relatively poor country in Europe, continue to improve. Singapore is moving from good to great. And you know, some regions in Shanghai, you can barely put on that map. So there is some progress, but in generally, not much. And when you think, you know, the first thing we always taught is the kind of knee-jerk reactions about money. And you can say, money matters for some countries. No? On the left side, poor countries. You can do a lot with adding more resources to the system. But actually, much of the industrialized world, that link is not so clear. Even time. Here on this chart, I show you the volume of time that students spend in school in blue, and the volume of time that students spend learning out of school, tutoring, all sorts of things like this. And there are huge differences. The country where we are in is the winner on the list. You know, students learn almost 60 hours per week. No country for which you have data invests more time in the children. You look at Finland on the left side, a little bit more than half of that time. Huge differences in the volume of learning time students spend in school. But when you look at productivity, learning gains per hour of instruction, you can see in Finland, students learn a lot in very little time. Whereas in the UAE, they spend a lot of time and actually learning gains are quite limited. Even a big country like the United States, you know, it's not about adding more hours of schooling, it's really about doing things differently. So that's basically a rough picture on where we are and why we need to think harder about the future. And it is difficult, it's very, very difficult. It, you know, there are many vested interests. The status quo has always many protectors, they are big asymmetries between those who gain from change and those who perceive to be losing, and so on. And actually, when we think about the future, the changes that we really have to accomplish, the first is one I think everybody owns now, and that is moving away from sorting people to be truly inclusive and to ensure that every student is capable to develop high levels of skills. In the past, actually, the design of our systems was not about this. Education systems were actually very effective and efficient in sorting people. And that made sense in the industrial age, because we only needed a few well-educated people. Now that we need everybody to succeed, we need to think very differently about this agenda. And I think that's actually something. I'm going to show you some very positive examples. We have seen global trends towards more inclusive education. The second one is harder, and I'm less positive about it. shifting from routine cognitive skills to developing the 21st century skills that really make a difference. Now, The kind of things that are easy to teach, easy to test are precisely those skills that have become easy to digitize. Now. And that requires a very different caliber of you know, teachers and teaching. And that has implications on the work organization. Basically, knowledge workers don't like to work in factories. Many countries have tried to make teaching financially more attractive. Teacher salaries have improved in many countries. But actually, we have made teaching intellectually less attractive. A lot of what has happened has actually contributed to deprofessionalizing education. And the accountability systems are part of this. So those are the kind of transitions I think we really need to think harder about. And when you look at this in global trends, look at the rise in the middle class. Over the next 10 years, we're going to have half of the world population joining the global middle class. And nine out of 10 entrants are going to come from two countries alone, China and India. And in absolute numbers, that looks impressive as well. This shows you there's going to be huge demand for better education. Parents with the resources and the interest and the capacities to invest in this. But the other side of the coin is growing inequality. And the countries I work with, most the OECD countries, the 10% top earners are now earning 10 times as much as the 10% bottom earners. That creates a level of social inequality that ends up also at the doorstep of schools. In fact, when we ask teachers in our most recent teacher survey, that was perceived to be the number one challenge. Diversity in classrooms Social diversity, economic diversity, cultural diversity. And cultural diversity comes with immigration. More people on the moves. And that's not a trend that happens once or twice. It's actually an ongoing increase. And again, it ends up on the doorsteps of classrooms. When in this round of PISA, we focus on global competency, the capacity of students to see the world through different lenses, different perspectives, appreciate different ways of thinking, different ways of walking. This is why. This is the kind of capacity living, appreciating diversity and different ways of thinking is going to be the test of truth for many of us. Rising volatility, we save less and you know we borrow more. And that means actually a lot of volatility in our systems. Education everywhere. You're going to see that even on the rise. There are more broadband connections than people in the area of the industrialized world. The rapid growth in digitalization and the growth in artificial intelligence is exponential. And that growth in artificial intelligence Pushes us to think much harder of what makes us truly human. How do we complement the artificial intelligence of computers rather than substituting them? If we end up making students almost as smart as a smartphone, we educate second class robots, not first class humans. And I think the challenge is very, very real when we design and implement curricula. If you think about it, you know, the smartphone got knowledge into everybody's fingertips. No? Shortly afterwards, the real world and the virtual world began to merge, and everybody got connected that 's a great side of you know digitalization. But if you think about what it does to education is that it actually makes many things much harder. when you think about teaching people to read literacy in the past, it was about you know, teaching people to extract knowledge from prefabricated sources and When you didn't know the answer to a question, you can look it up in an encyclopedia. And you can trust the answer to be true. That was relatively straightforward. Today, when you don't know the answer to a question, you look it up on Beidou or on on Google, and you find a million answers to your question. And nobody tells you what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. Learning today is no longer about teaching people something. It is about giving them a reliable compass and the navigation tools. So find their own way. Literacy is about constructing knowledge, not about extracting knowledge. And I could make the same story about mathematics, about science, about history. In the past, history was about teaching people names and places. Today is about understanding how the narrative of a society has emerged, developed, grown, sometimes unraveled when the context changed, and what it means for where we are right now, thinking like an historian. All those paradigms have shifted in the face of digitalization. I just said, you know, how great it is that we are all connected. But what technology does, it brings you together with people who think like you, who look like you, who are like you, uh, who walk like you. It's actually, our data show it's much harder today for people to experience diversity than it used to be for us as children. It sounds the opposite. But that's the reality. So again, you know, teaching global competency, teaching empathy, interpersonal skills, no? those are actually the skills of the day. No? And when you look at this in the light of PISA results, you can see the majority of people, young people, say they feel really bad if they're not connected. No? Being connected has become like drinking water or you know, uh, breathing air. And actually, the time that students spend online on a typical day has, in some countries, doubled in a period of three years alone. The virtual world is becoming the real world for people. Raising huge question in the world of work, you can see, I mentioned this already, no? routine cognitive skills are losing rapidly in value. What no? we are very, very good at, at school. But when you look at the rising lines, one has to do with you know, non-routine analytic skills, you know, solving complex problems, creative thinking. But actually, if you look carefully, the line that rises fastest is actually about social skills. Social and emotional skills are the one that have become the big driver in the age in which we live. And we talk about social skills in national curricula. Every curriculum has in its front, you know, students should be able to think for themselves and work with others. We all know this. But you look at the reality, which puts students in the classroom with people sitting behind desks. And then at the end of the year, we give them a test to see whether they are better than the neighbor. And we talk about collaboration. So there's a big mismatch between the design of our systems and the aspirations of curriculum. At the OECD, we've been thinking very carefully about this. And the first is when you look at knowledge. And knowledge, obviously, is always the foundation. But there is a big shift from content knowledge to epistemic understanding. Can you think like a scientist? Can you think like a mathematician? Think like an historian? Think like a philosopher? Can you do that all the time? Can you look at problems from disciplinary, different disciplinary angles? Very, very important. On the skill set, you know, when we talk about skills, the first thing that we talk about is typically, you know, again, cognitive skills, creativity, critical thinking. But keep in mind, what is really on the rise is the need for social and emotional skills. And of course attitudes and values. This is where things get really, really tough. But you know, if people don't have a floor under their feet, they're gonna build walls around them. We see this everywhere. So the teaching of values in the past you could rely on parents, you could rely on society, on lots of things. Today that is actually a big challenge for schools. So. And what is competency, you know people debate that all the time. It's actually quite simple is our capacity not only to know something and to be able to do something, but our capacity to mobilize our cognitive, social, and emotional resources in a context. We've come to sort of three classes of competencies that are really central for the future, and they are built around the concept of student agency. When I say that, I'm, this is something, if you think about it carefully, this is transforming everything. We've designed our systems mainly about students as passive learners who absorb material. The future of learning is about students being active in the process, acquiring knowledge, developing. And that requires a very, very different set of pedagogical experiences. Why do I say this? Because passive learning works up to the end of the schooling, but you can no longer prepare yourself once for your lifetime. The test of truth these days is, are you going to continue? expanding your horizon every day afterwards. The biggest challenge for our society is really, you know, can we cope with change? Do we have the mental resilience and the capacities to continue to grow in a rapidly changing world? And I don't think the answer is out there. This is the kind of things that build agency at the center. And we also look not only at, as agency for individuals, also co-agency. Can you actually build a shared understanding, work with people who may be differently from you? Can you actually do something that builds something of intrinsic positive work, creating something of new value? No, that's probably the easiest to grasp difference between us and computers. No? Artificial intelligence is very, very good to make predictions from large amounts of data. No? Actually, artificial intelligence is not very good in lateral thinking, no? expanding the horizon Thinking around the next corner. That's where humans still have a very, very big advantage. Our capacity to reconcile tensions and dilemmas. Managing, navigating ambiguity. You know? Solving problems that are complex, fast changing. And again, taking responsibility, turning that into action. Very, very important drivers of success. Now, when you think about the pedagogical environments behind that, you know, the first thing. I would highlight is our capacity to be open to the novelty, open to the future. Easy to say, hard to do. Openness, uh, we are very, very good in transmitting our wisdom to the next generation. We know how to do that. We're not that good in having young people question the established wisdom of our times. Small children are very entrepreneurial, maybe more than you like, very creative, and so on. But actually, our systems are not designed to nourish this, to actually help people to be open, to look around the next corner, and so on. Reflection, stepping back, seeing the bigger picture, seeing the forest among the trees, and again, you know, taking action. None of this is going to help you if you cannot convert your cognitive, social, and emotional resources into some form of action. Now, let's have a look at some of the countries. You know, one of the countries that comes always out really, really well on comparisons like PISA is Canada. You know? Always a top performer. And you can see they are doing very well on critical thinking. You know? And what's interesting is that the Canadians have succeeded to embed critical thinking in almost anything they teach. The bar is many, many colors means that those kinds of critical thinking skills are embedded in many curricular domains. They're very, very good on the communication angle. They're quite good on the problem solving. But look at the next column. When you look at social skills, cooperation, it's almost non-visible, the bar. I'm not saying that Canadian teachers don't develop social skills, but it's not an intended part of the instructional system. Let's have a look at another top performer. Japan, you know, if you think about a large system that consistently comes out well on, you know, PISA and international comparisons, it's Japan. But look at this, you know, the Canadians were doing really well on critical thinking. That's not a great strength of the Japanese instructional system. But remember, the Canadians were not so good on social skills. That's actually one of the big strengths of the Japanese curriculum now. And it's not because Japanese have a different culture. That's often what people say. It is actually a quite intended part of the instructional design. Older students helping younger students doing their homework. The teacher cooking the meal with the students. The teachers and students cleaning the classroom at the end of the school day. All of this is an intentional aspect of the system to build a collaborative culture. Teachers working together. Teachers t- changing their workplace every three years. Now, there is a collaborative culture combined with professional autonomy. So it's not coming around by chance. These are things that we can see. But you go at the end of the list. Entrepreneurship, you know, agency, zero. Again, I'm not saying that there are no Japanese entrepreneurs very successful. They are, of course. But it's not an intended part of the system. All what I wanted to show you, and I could show you now many countries that are not successful, successful on PISA, and you can just imagine the outcomes. But even among the world's top performing education system, their future is still very, very far away. Let me come and actually conclude with a couple of challenges. The first is, you know, how do we advance from just helping some people succeed? To actually getting everybody to successful, and some people say, you know, that's not an attainable goal. Poverty is destiny. Now, you can look, for example, here at data from the United States. I can show you learning outcomes from Pisa by decile of social background. Huge social disparities. And many people say, well, that's a fact of context. It's not an outcome, you know, of what we do of policy and practice. But when I show you, for example, the 10% most disadvantaged students in Singapore. Now, same poverty level, same disadvantage, they do as well as the average American. And if I show you actually the 10% most disadvantaged students in the province of Shanghai in China, they do at least in mathematics. That's not the future of education alone, but it's sort of showing us how they actually have beat sort of the trends. They are capable to, able to attract the most talented teachers in the most challenging classrooms and give the most disadvantaged students an excellent education. So, we can do that. Actually, there are good examples worldwide how we can moderate social disadvantage. And when you look at this, you know, how do we allocate resources to teachers? If you take the United States, for example, if you are in a, in a disadvantaged community, you have a very large class. And if you get into a privileged community, you get smaller classes. You can really see how a system can be regressive. We give more resources to the students in privilege. When I look at this across the industrialized world, the OECD countries, it goes the other way around. And now you say, wow, actually most countries have figured out that we need to get more resources to the more disadvantaged students, formula-based funding, you know, pupil premium, lots of devices now in place. And then you think, well, you look at this, I understand why the United States is not so, ex- so equitable, but the rest of the world, or the OECD, should have equitable results. But you look one step further. This was about the quantity of resources. As soon as you turn to the quality of teaching, it goes to the regressive picture in the OECD countries as well. Even where we have figured out how to get more teachers to the more disadvantaged communities and schools, we are still sending the most talented and qualified teachers to the wealthiest children. So in most countries of the OECD, Maybe not in quantity terms, but in quality terms, our systems are still regressive. That's something to address. And there are education systems that have become better in doing this. now. The second and last challenge I want to mention is how do we move from a system that actually tells people exactly what to do towards building true ownership for the profession? Because that's what the future is about in every other profession. Future, you know, routine skills. If teaching is about, you know, routine transmission of knowledge, you're going to see that automated. Now, hopefully, actually, because it will free up time for teachers to do what's actually the central feature of teaching—that is to be, you know, to focus on relationships, to be a great coach, a great mentor, a great designer, a great innovator—and that requires greater ownership of professional practice. Uh, it's again, you know, not about making teaching just financially more attractive. We know how to do this. It's about creating an environment that strengthens professional autonomy in a collaborative culture. As you know, in the OECD, we try to measure as much as we can, and we actually measure teacher professionalism. We look at three aspects of this. The first of all is this knowledge. You know? The first thing your students find out is what you, whether you really own the subject that you teach. You know? Students are actually very, very good analysts, and they understand very quickly whether their teacher has a real passion for what they teach, what they know of the subject. What do you know about how students learn that subject? Quite a different question, learning science. And what do you actually know about your students? That's something in many countries we have given teachers actually less and less time to engage with students as individuals, and more and more time in the classroom but actually, is an important feature of a successful education system. Degree of professional autonomy, I talked about it, but also very importantly, the, the collaborative culture. And again, you know, in most professions, that's gonna be the driver of, of the future. Just focusing a bit on the last part. You know, when you look at some data on this, you can actually see when it comes to professional collaboration on the very informal side. We're doing quite well. The teachers sharing knowledge, practices, taking part in conferences, and so on. But when you look at the deeper level of collaboration, you know, do I observe other teachers' classrooms? Do I take part in collaborative professional development? Do I engage in team teaching? Those things are actually rare. And why do I think this is an issue? Because you know, when you look at what makes a difference, you know, the more teachers teach jointly, the more they observe other classes, engage in joint activity, take part in professional learning, the greater their sense of ownership of professional practice. We call that self-efficacy, but that's what it is about. The highest point of leverage of change in an education is teacher beliefs. If you can't change sort of that kind of mindset, You're not going to change anything. And those things depend on collaborative practice, not so much on salaries, and actually not so much on class size. In fact, I want to conclude with this slide. I show you two countries here. United States and China both have a relatively similar student-staff ratio. They invest about the same number of teachers for every 100 students. But in China, the class is very large. In the United States, it's rather small, or sort of an average. And now you might think, well, the United States got it right. You know, smaller classes are always nicer, more pleasant, and more attractive to parents. But it comes at a very high price. Actually, in the United States, teachers have almost a very little time to do anything else than teaching. You spend one hour teaching after the other, and there's very little time scheduled for other things. If you're a teacher in you know, China, you teach between 11 and 16 hours per week. And you spend a lot of time individually with students. You spend a lot of time with your colleagues, you know, framing good practice, analyzing practice, doing research, creating innovative practices, and so on. Very, very different work organization that actually leads to a much greater sense of professionalism. Singapore, very, very much the same kind of story. And now you may tell me, well, smaller classes may not be so effective, but they are a driver of teacher job satisfaction. But actually, we surveyed that as well. And you can actually see, we found actually no relationship between whether teachers were happy with their jobs and the size of their class. So what makes teachers happy? Actually, the answer is very much the same. The biggest predictors of teachers' job satisfaction is teacher professionalism teacher professional knowledge, professional autonomy, and the collaborative culture. They predict very well the the extent to which teachers are satisfied with the profession, with the work environment, self-efficacy, and interestingly, even the status of the teaching profession in society. If we want to improve the status of the teaching profession, let's not deprofessionalize teaching, but making it more of a profession. That's really what the future is about. And you can see there is huge variability across countries in the status of the teaching profession. If you are in Singapore, in Korea, in Finland, teachers see themselves as highly regarded in the profession. If you go to the end of the scale, you know my children go to school in France. Only five teachers in a hundred see themselves as respected by by the society. It's not because they get low salaries. Is because those other ingredients are not there. Now you can say, oh, well, this is just teachers complaining. But actually, it is one of the best predictors that we also have for the educational outcomes in a country. So lots of challenges, but also I do believe there are many interesting and promising angles of how we can see improvements. Thank you so far and look forward. Thanks. <clears throat>
1: Thanks Andreas, that was a fascinating talk. Um, As you say, a a lot to do, a lot of challenges. I'm just going to ask a couple of questions myself and then I'm going to throw it out to the floor. So the first thing that occurred to me was you were talking, one of the key problems was that there was a, um, there isn't the depth of understanding that should be. What, is that just because there's so much more to learn and there isn't the bandwidth there? What, what, What do you think the cause of that is?
2: Well, you know, part of the answer is simply that it's very easy to add stuff to the curriculum. You know, Everybody will be your friend if today you add financial literacy, tomorrow digital literacy, the day after environmental literacy. Mm-hmm. And that is, what made, well, that is what made our instructional systems a kind of mile wide inch deep. Yeah. Successful education is about teaching fewer things at greater depth, but that's very, very hard to do. Yeah. Because uh, the pressures of society to, you know, this idea that we need to cram everything in the world into young children, to make them fit for their future is actually the biggest threat actually to successful learning, I believe.
1: And when you, when you study systems around the world and, and you talk to people, are there kind of common things that you think countries could take out of their you know, cu- curriculum that sort of, com- I wouldn't say common offenders, but, but things that occur over and over again that you could, you could take away? On the question of
2: curriculum. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to, to
1: give more bandwidth. Actually, more space. In, in,
2: indeed there is. I think the first thing that you do see is that, High performing systems typically teach fewer things at greater depth. So it's about rigor, mm-hmm. cognitive demand, is about focus, It's about coherence. You have a more logical sequencing of what students learn. Sort of mastery learning is a very important concept. Second thing, you do have a shift, you know, from simply content knowledge to greater kind of capacities of students to use and apply knowledge. You have learning that is increasingly project based. Experiential where students have more opportunities to do things rather than to absorb things in, in different forms that can come you know in school out of school, but I think that 's a big big shift, and you have greater recognition that some things are caught, not taught, particularly when it comes to social and emotional skills mm-hmm. again, you know Japanese teachers, Singaporean teachers do spend more time with students to engage with them as learners rather than just being instructors and I think those are really or Finland would be a good example of this as well. I think those are features of curriculum design that I think are quite common in art performance. Sure,
1: Um, sure. You mentioned it today, and you mentioned a couple of times over over this conference that there are vested interests that are uh, standing in the way of, of education progressing as it should and maybe making full use of technology. Can you be any more specific about what those vested interests, who or what they are?
2: Yeah, you know, some of those vested interests are actually design features of our systems, uh, gateways, for example. We mm-hmm. often, you know, put in new curricula, instructional systems in place, but we don't change the exam systems. And when you have, you know, a forward looking curriculum and a backward looking exam system, very kind of simple, the exam wins every time. I think that's a sort of a design feature that often hinders this. Vested interests are our stakeholder. You know relationships. Uh, you have you know teacher organizations often you know fighting for adding more teachers to the system, whereas we know high performers prioritize the quality of teaching over the number of teachers. So I think there are many vested systems. And again, you know. The social conservativeness of education coming from clients, from parents, no? mm-hmm. the very instrumental perspective that we have on, on education. Uh, in in fact, you know, a thousand years ago, we were less instrumental in our views on education. Education was about, you know, building human beings. It was not about I, I teach you for a job. And I think sure. that perspective is also a sense of, you know, vested interest. No? Sure.
1: Again, um, I, I know it's a common theme with you, but. Um, you, you kind of talk a lot about knowledge, and you've used this phrase several times that Google knows everything, and you've you've explained how that means, that's about what the modern world wants from students. So they don't need somebody who can just repeat knowledge, but they need somebody who who can apply it and know what to do with it. But do you think that means that you don't have to actually teach that knowledge anymore?
2: You know, I think that is a very very dangerous uh, misunderstanding and misconception about knowledge. Um, I don't think we need to teach as much of the you know surface facets of knowledge but mm-hmm. we need give to give people a deep understanding of a discipline if you do not understand the nature of mathematics you know what does an exponential function actually mean you'll not be a good user of google if you are not able to sort of to access manage integrate <laughs> evaluate information literacy skills you're not going to be making sense out of google so i think actually it's not that we need to teach less knowledge, but we need to give people a deeper understanding of the foundations of the discipline, rather than teaching surface knowledge. And again, I can give you an example. In, uh, in your country, uh, in a typical mathematics lesson, typic- students are confronted with between 16 and 17 problems. Mm-hmm. So they get a lot of small tasks where they train routines and procedures. If you look at some of the, the high performers, they teach one, maybe two problems. And they vary them in context. They give students a a good understanding of what's the nature of the problem, and then the procedures you can practice at home. So I think that's the issue. It's not knowing less, but it's knowing more about the foundations of a discipline, and then hoping or expecting students can acquire knowledge in that discipline on their own, rather than cramming them with this kind of factual knowledge that will not carry them.
1: So it's maybe less, less practice in the lessons. You're not jettisoning huge parts of the curriculum, that, yeah. yeah that's interesting. Um, one last one from me and then, and then we'll see what everybody else has to ask you, um, is, do you think there's a danger with the global education policy focus based on technology that some lower income countries where, where classrooms are often offline or off the electricity grid that they're gonna be left behind as, as other countries rise to the kind of challenges you're talking about?
2: Yeah, and that may not just be between countries. We may see the same effect within countries. That technology technology will super empower those who have the capacity to draw benefit from it, yeah. and disempower those who are not. You know, we come become easily the slaves of algorithms. Now, the day computers will understand ourselves better than we do understand ourselves, we're going to yeah. be in a very difficult territory. And I think that risk is something that is not just you know about having access to technology, but in I think in it's very much to do whether we master the skills to actually harness the power of technology. And I'm as much, you know, technology in many classrooms does actually more damage than it produces better outcomes. There's a lot of evidence to this. You can also see that in PISA. I think that our capacity to use technology in a way that complements, not substitute traditional learning, I think is going to be very, very key to this. On the, on the access to technology, I'm less worried. You know, I think within a decade, probably you will have technology in the last village. That's right. much easier to achieve than giving people the kind of cognitive, social, emotional skills to actually take benefit from that. Right.
1: right. Well, if we could have some questions. Um, if you could say who you are and keep it to a question rather than a statement because <laughs> we're short of time, please. Can I start off with uh, this lady in the front row just, just here? Sorry, not front row. Second front row.
0: Um, hello, I'm Helen and I'm from the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Um, your uh, reference to autonomy reminded me of Harold Perkins' work on open professionalism with this rubric of autonomy, discretionary judgment, expertise, which all centre, uh, to my mind, on trust uh, and trusting teachers, trusting our educators. How can we foster uh, greater trust in our uh, powerful, the most powerful workforce actually on the planet?
2: I think this is a very, very good point. And in fact, that's what we see as one of the ingredients in high-performing systems. Now, Finland is a good example. Actually, Finland spends very little in resources on the management of mistrust, which is very expensive in a system, all these kinds of layers of bureaucracy. And they focus on building trust in the profession. But you know, trust always comes with professional expertise. You trust your mother, but you will not trust her to fly a 747. Now, I mean, that's the kind of thing you know. We need to have transparency about professional knowledge, a collaborative ownership of professional knowledge. I think is very, very important for trust. Professional autonomy is not about I do things that I like to do now. It's I do the things that are right in this context, given the knowledge in my profession. So I think the best way to Build trust, which is the kind of glue that holds together in education systems, is to create the foundations. Again, you know, teacher professional knowledge, a collaborative culture that creates those ingredients that then, you know, parents will trust, students will trust and think but I think you're absolutely right. Trust is always the foundation of strong relationships and high performing systems in different ways. And you can build that in, uh, you know, we we were talking about technology. On on a student level, I think it's quite ambiguous. On a teacher level, technology can be a very, very powerful tool to connect teachers, to build platforms for co creation and so on. And that's where trust comes from. Trust never is the prerequisite, trust is always an outcome of how we work. Thank you very
1: much. This gentleman here, please. Uh, Gavin Anderson from the British Council. Uh, Creativity curiosity, uh, social connections. These are all things that are foundational to the human species. So it's somewhat ironic that we call them 21st century skills. It implies that we somehow lost them in the 20th century. My question is, how, how are you assessing those creativity and critical thinking skills in the pilot that you're currently doing?
2: Yeah, that's actually a very good question. In fact, for the assessment of creative Thinking skills, and that's only a small slice of creativity. It's taken us many years to build an assessment foundation. What we do now, digital tools have allowed us to actually do a lot in this space. For example, we can ask students to produce original answers. We can have students assessing the originality of their answers, and so on. So I think technology actually allows to assess divergent thinking. We can actually see not only did a student get the answer right or wrong, but we can actually see how they approach that answer. I think the assessment tools are actually becoming quite powerful on those cognitive skills. On the social and emotional skills, our assessments are still often very much based on self reported. No? Collaborative problem solving, we were able to assess, I think, quite well, where we basically had students you know, working together to. You know, fly a rocket to the moon, for example. And you manage the fuel supply, somebody else the navigation, and then students had to sort of figure out together those kinds of issues. So some areas is working well on others. You know, creative thinking, I'm quite confident we can assess. Curiosity, that's going to be way beyond our current tools. But you know, we said the same thing about you know, traditional disciplines 20 years ago. So I think the field is moving fast. And, some people say, well, you, know, you shouldn't touch those things in the assessment. But I think if we don't, then we will marginalize them more. I mean, if we are honest, the space for creative work in schools, the arts and music, has actually been shrinking. We talk about it more, but if you actually look at the time, and we, we track those things very carefully in the OECD, that space has actually become
1: smaller. Right. This is slightly over here, please.
0: Hello, I'm Melody Lang from MPA Education. Um, my um, question is a little bit linked. So I was wondering, how do we measure, uh, wh- what is the measure of success of education in general? So that's really taking a few steps back. So if we're focusing on human skills, how does PISA manages to measure those human skills? But Or do we take another step back and say, is it about economic growth of a country, or is it about achieving the UN SDGs?
2: Well, you know, I think the UN SDGs is a good framework for measuring success of humanity. I think that's actually the best that uh, humanity has come up with. Um, and, uh, but obviously, it means that success can only be seen much beyond your initial schooling career. So when we look at sco- school students, we only have a kind of s- s- small slice of this. The long-term success of yourself is you know, a long-term picture. What we do in in the context of PISA, we measure cognitive skills, we measure social skills, we measure some of the emotional attributes, we look at life satisfaction of students, student well-being, and sometimes they go together, sometimes they go in very different directions. You look at Korea, they come out really on top of cognitive skills, they come out quite low on student well-being, on life satisfaction. You look at Estonia and Finland, they somehow get both right. The Netherlands as well, Switzerland to some extent. You look at South America, students are quite happy, students satisfied with their lives, but not doing so well, cognitively so. This is all the short-term picture. But it's like taking a photograph. The real interesting part is the movie that evolves when people graduate from school and the role they play and the contribution they're going to make for themselves and for society. And that's obviously beyond schooling. But I hope the SDGs will encourage us to actually measure success much more holistically. Can
1: we have this gentleman over here, please, in the red shirt?
0: Hi, this is Akash from India, uh, I wanted to ask, um, are there,
1: like you talked about teacher professional development being the biggest source of satisfaction. Um, what, what about, and are there any examples where incentives do not align to teacher professional development? For example, uh, in India, the, if I grow on my job, that wouldn't affect things like, tangible things like promotions and pays. Right? So in the countries where teacher professional development has been high
0: and taken up by teachers, were tangible benefits aligned to teachers growing on the job?
2: Yeah, you know, I, uh, actually, our data doesn't show sort of that impact of teacher professional development. It shows that impact of teacher professional collaboration. You know, sometimes teacher professional collaboration is part of teacher professional development, but not always. A lot of professional development is about you know, taking teachers out of a school, sending them to universities. We do not see that positive impact there. The actually predictive outcomes really comes when you create settings in a school where teachers work together to frame good practice, where they share their experiences, observe other teachers' classrooms. Engage in joint teaching activities. And that's something that public policy can do. We can create those kinds of spaces. Sometimes, you know, a greater focus on cross curricular learning. Project based learning will encourage teachers from different subjects to actually think about problems uh, along similar lines. So I think it's more about work organization than professional development. It's like you know, in, 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 in student learning, we often think you know, student assessment is taking something away from student learning. And we think you know, professional development is think, taking something away from teaching. But it's really about looking more at the organization of work of teachers that is a, more that of a profession. You know? And we, we used to learn to do the work, and now learning is the work. And that's true for students, for teachers, and for everyone. And I think that's a very, very different
1: setting for development. OK. We've got time for one very quick last question okay. from this lady Thanks.
0: here. Um, my is Cat Thorne. I'm from the Commonwealth Education Trust. I'm a CEO. It was really good, actually. I didn't get a chance to answer my question because it follows on from what you just said. Um, we're, we've got an initiative called Teach 2030, and I think what we see is that... Um, we're teaching teachers the same way we've been teaching students, which is, you know, teacher at the front of the class. So I was interested to hear, we've been testing an initiative where as part of our taking training to the teachers um, initiative, we are putting CPD on the timetable so that, you know, it's a really, really very simple, small strategy, but seems to be working because when it's on the timetable and it's driven by teachers, so it doesn't have to be doing our programme each week, but it could be as you said, that they just, they just spend that time sitting together for 45 minutes or 30 minutes, yeah. which is a, you know, something that they just... It's a, it's a novelty and it's some, a luxury could they you, don't normally sorry, have.
1: Sorry, you just say what the question
0: is? So, yeah, what's, what's your opinion... Sorry. What's your opinion on, on sort of simple strategies like that? How effective can they be? And how can we change a shift from teaching teachers to teachers actually be, taking more responsibility for their own professional learning?
2: There are actually many really good examples around the world. I mean, professional learning communities in schools are quite well established in many high performing education systems. Mentorships, coaching, where teachers actually play an active role in helping other teachers grow in their profession. Sometimes that in, it, in itself is reflected in teacher evaluation schemes. So I think there are actually many, many it's about combining, you know. Teaching, research, and design, those aspects in one, rather than saying, you teach, and then we train you to teach the next kind of group, Teaching and learning. you know, Your students will not become lifelong learners if they don't see their teachers actually as active, lifelong learners. And I think that's creating an environment for that does require some time. And that's actually what we see in most high-performing countries ask teachers to teach less, but to walk more. And they actually have more dedicated space to that kind of development.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Andreas. That's all <coughs> we've got time for. But thank you for a fascinating talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.